Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government for today's event, Can We Trust Our Electoral System? Nice, easy question to answer on a Wednesday lunchtime. Uh, I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director for Data and Digital Government here at the Institute, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you today. Forget Labour's NHS announcement, forget the SNP manifesto launch, forget even the YouGov poll we're all waiting for tonight. This is the place to be on the election trail today. Um, some housekeeping before we get underway. We are on the record today and we are live streaming, so hello to anybody watching us online. If you'd like to get involved in the online conversation, we're using the hashtag IFGElection2019 and tweeting from at IFGEvents. For those of you in the room, you can get online using the details at the top of our slide. It's the IFG Internet Hotspot with the password Institute123. No fire drills are planned, so if there is a fire alarm, please vacate this room as quickly as possible using the stairs and not the lift. And very specifically, head for the statue of King George VI outside, not the one of Queen Elizabeth. So um, that's out of the building, turn to the right. Um, if we do have a first aid incident, I will also ask you to clear the room as swiftly as possible. Our electoral laws are not fit for purpose. Political campaigns are fought online, not through the letterbox, and our laws need to be brought up to date with the digital age. Those are the words of Damien Collins, then the chair of the Digital, Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, as he called for urgent legislation to protect the UK's electoral system. Technology has transformed how elections unfold in the 21st century. Everything from how political parties use our data, how campaigns target us, and how we all consume information about parties and policies. Technology may also present opportunities as well as threats. But has electoral law kept pace with all of those developments? Can we trust our electoral system? Well, we've got an incredible panel to answer those questions and more today. Uh, first, we'll hear from Will Moy, who is the chief executive of the UK's independent fact-checking charity, Full Fact. Not to be confused with Fact Check UK. <laughs> Except no imitations. Um, full Fact has long called for changes to electoral law. Just this September, they wrote to parliamentarians calling for legislation covering the transparency of online campaigning, online advertising, and a protocol for alerting the public to major interference. We'll then hear from Liz Carolan. Liz is the Executive Director of Digital Action, which works to strengthen democratic rights in a digital age through building coalitions that can tackle digital threats. She was one of the co-founders of the Transparent Referendum Initiative, uh, which worked on the Eighth Amendment abortion uh, referendum in Ireland, campaigning for an open referendum there and building a database of political ads. Uh, she's previously worked at the Open Data Charter, the Open Data Institute, and here at the Institute for Government. We'll then hear from Dr. Martin Moore, Director of the Centre for the Study of Communication, Media and Power, and Senior Lecturer in Political Communication Education at King's College London. He's also the author of the recent book, Democracy Hacked, How Technology is Destabilising Global Politics, which looks at the impact of data miners, dark ads, bots, and so much more on our democratic processes. Before joining King's, Martin was the founding director of the charity, the Media Standards Trust, where, full disclosure, he had the great misfortune to be my boss. <laughs> and last, but certainly not least, we'll be hearing from Sir John Holmes, the chair of the Electoral Commission, the independent body which oversees elections and regulates political finance here in the UK. Sir John is a highly experienced diplomat. His career has included advising prime ministers, including John Major and Tony Blair. He's been the ambassador to both Lisbon and Paris, and, and was also appointed the UN Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs. The Electoral Commission itself has long called for reform of our electoral system, including some greater powers around compelling information from third parties. I'm going to e ask each of our panellists to speak for around five minutes. Time permitting, we'll have a quick discussion on the panel, and then we'll throw it out to you, the audience, for questions. This event will end after one hour, so please keep any questions short and sharp and we'll aim to end at around 1.30. So without further ado, Will. Can we trust our electoral system? Yes, more than some people think. Over the next two weeks, full facts we can already anticipate, we'll be dealing with a whole series of misinformation about where your polling station is, whether or not you should vote with a pencil because somebody, it's never quite clear who, is going to rub out your uh, cross and put it somewhere else and all the rest of it. 
there is a lot of fear about our electoral system. We shouldn't contribute to groundless fears in discussions like this. We need to tackle them. We need to maintain faith in our electoral system. Doing that is partly through scrutiny, through an open democratic process, and that open democratic process is currently failing. These are the reasons we cannot trust our electoral system. We have agreed as a country principles that govern the way we do elections. We agree that you should not be able to interfere in a UK election from outside the UK. That's in the Representation of the People's Act. So you cannot broadcast from outside the UK into the UK in order to uh, interfere with an election. That's known as the Lord Hawhorn rule, goes back to German propaganda. We agree that you should put your name on your campaign materials so it's clear who's making them. That's the imprint rule. Neither of these are particularly surprising. We also agree that advertising in an election is a powerful force and that it should be regulated and it should be scrutinised. In fact, television advertising in the UK is banned, something that has been litigated as far as the European Court of Human Rights. All of these things are important accepted principles and none of them have been updated um, in the online world. There is no requirement in online campaigning to put your name on uh, what you are producing. In fact, as we've seen in this election, you can put somebody else's name on what you're producing and legally, at least, be on safe ground. There is no requirement for online advertising to be capable, and I do mean capable, of being scrutinised by your political opponents or by third parties. That is now a massive gap in the scrutiny and integrity of our election system. And of course, we are wide open to foreign interference. I should say at the moment that we have not seen credible reports of uh, serious levels of hostile state action in this election. We and others uh, with more experience in this area are monitoring for those kinds of threats. But we do know that this is a standard part of the repertoire of certain states and that any sensible modern democracy has to be prepared for them. In Canada, for example, before they had their election this year, they created a protocol for warning the public about serious levels of foreign interference or hostile state action. Um, and that protocol was established to be run by civil servants independently of political decision makers. We have no such process. So if the skilled and capable civil servants who are currently in charge of monitoring for this kind of interference and disinformation were to detect something, we would be in a situation where politicians were having to make the call about whether or not to tell the public and in what way. That is, at best, suboptimal. So we have a series of gaps before we even get onto anything controversial, a series of gaps in understood <coughs> principles no longer applying because the law has not been updated since the last century. The bigger point is this. Everybody agrees on some of these updates. Everybody agrees that the imprint law should be extended online, for example. The Electoral Commission asked for this, I think, first around 15 years ago. We've been talking about it for several years. Uh, the Institute for Practitioners in Advertising agrees on the need to improve um, and legislate for uh, online advertising transparency. Uh, even Facebook has called for Parliament to act in this area, and yet they haven't. The long-term threat to the electoral integrity of the United Kingdom is the fecklessness of successive governments and parliaments who are well aware of and who have explicitly acknowledged the risk here but have done nothing to address it. We know that in the next 30 years, we will continually be living in an ever-changing information environment and the nature of the threats to election integrity will continue to change. The nature of the actors involved in our elections will continue to change. And at the moment, as a country, we have decided to outsource decisions about the election rules we have to the CEOs of American internet companies. And that's an extraordinary and an extraordinarily irresponsible thing to have done. So if we want to have election integrity right now, we should have done, as Damian Collins said, emergency legislation before this election, at least to insist on transparency of campaigning and transparency on advertising. If we want to have election integrity for future elections, we need a regular process of reviewing and updating our election law as the world changes around us. And in doing that, we need to see continued investment in the election, Electoral Commission, which for too long did not have the resources to properly advise in this area and to keep pace with changes and to help 
parliament in this area. We need to see them properly resourced to be our guide through these threats and these opportunities as well. Thank you, Will. Liz. Thanks, Will. I'm, I'm not going to disagree with anything Will said. Excellent. It's all very sensible. I, mean, uh, I, I would just add that it's not just the, the UK who's struggling yeah. to, to, to deal with this. I'm, I'm based in, in Ireland and we actually don't even have an election commission. Um, uh, we, it's, it's sort of like the UK was before where elections are, are governed by local government. But we are in the process of um, developing one in every government manifesto for about the last, <laughs> for about the last, but they, but they promised me it's coming. Um, so, but, but which is quite exciting because I, I think we, we do fundamentally need to rethink electoral administration um, uh, in the digital age that we that we live in. But um, I, I think um, uh, Gavin asked me here to talk, I think mostly about um, an example of a project I, I did last year, which helps, I think, just put a bit of flesh on the bones of the, of the, the, the threats that Will mentioned. Um, so you may remember last year, um, Ireland had a referendum um, uh, on whether or not to, to legalize um, uh, abortion access in, in Ireland. Um, we love referendums. I think we've had two or three since, because um, uh, we, we have quite a strong written constitution. Um, but during that, you know, we, 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 the, the, the particular dynamics of this referendum um, uh, sort of um, indicated that, that it was likely that there was going to be both a huge amount of funding um, uh, going into this campaign um, and also there was a lot of interest from overseas groups who have traditionally used Ireland's, um, Ireland's um, ban on abortion as a sort of symbolic, um, as, as sort of a, as a, as a yes, as, as having symbolic, symbolic meaning elsewhere and so um, when um, you know the, the kind of the aftermath of the U.S. Um, uh, the, the U.S. presidential election of 2016 was sort of playing out in, in, in Congress, and there was all of this emphasis on the direct overseas purchase of political ads in order to influence that that, that election. Um, some colleagues and I got together and um, worked with who targets me to sort of build um, a, a kind of uh, um, a scraped database of the ads that were circulating during the <laughs> referendum campaign. We were able to find about one and a half thousand separate ads, um, which as Will was saying, would not have been um, in the public domain were it not for the 900 or so volunteers who were helping us to scrape um, and, and, and publish these ads. And there's a few characteristics of those that, that I think are relevant for when we're thinking about whether or not um, our, our electoral laws are, 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 are fit. And I think that the key one to me is um, that the, the um, is, is that the the nature of digital campaigning enables anybody anywhere to pretend that they are anybody that they want to be um, and to pay money in order to try and influence public discourse. Um, and so what we saw in, in, in Ireland was um, kind of precursors to, to, to some of the things that we're seeing in the UK at the moment. Um, campaigns being set up which are not connected to any of the official campaigns where toxic or polarizing or bullying messages are able to be pushed out um, without any ability to trace who is behind that um, and any connection that it may or may not have to legitimate campaigns. We also saw mimicry or impersonation of neutral accounts, um, which were driving people towards websites, you know, with names like Undecided on the eighth, um, but which were in entirely, in entirely, entirely biased. Um, and I think as well, um, uh, one of the you know, we've we've been doing some work in other elections since, and I think one of the mo most sort of worrying potential aspects of this type of campaigning. Um, is, um, is, is, is the potential for it to be used as part of kind of voter suppression um, tactics. We know from people who work inside political campaigns that you don't necessarily use a digital campaign to sway people's opinion one way or another. You use it in order to mobilize people to get them to the polls. And we saw during US 2020 that there was deliberate um, targeting of ethnic minorities sort of saying, we don't trust either candidate, there's no point in voting, some of these kind of boycott campaigns. During the recent um, European elections, I think ISD who were here and others found some examples of these type of boycott campaigns targeting people in, in, in the Baltic states and in Spain, and I think we're going to see a huge amount of that in 2020. Again, how do, we, how do we begin to think about those outside of the context of mainstream political parties and where people have, you know, um, uh, it's, it's, it's no good as finding out that these activities are taking place after an election has happened. Um, I think there are a couple of opportunities, though, in, um, in, in the recent changes to technology for, for better governance of elections. So, for example, um, uh, one of my favorite parts of the Election Commission website um, is where you can uh, download um, spending data um, to really quite a granular level, um, uh, you know, down to the level where you can see receipts 
um, for, 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 for people who have, who have um, done expenditure. Um, there's no reason why um, with, with all of the financial transactions that are taking place for digital political campaigning being concentrated in two or three companies, there's no reason why we can't have very real, real-time um, uh, tr transparency by private companies of the transactions that are taking place on, those, on, on, on their sites. That gets us beyond the sort of you know, thresholds for when people need to be reporting. It takes the, the burden off parties to be um, you know, trying to sort of put, put things out in real time, and it puts it on companies who have a stake in still being around in, in five or 10 years' time where, where many, um, where many um, pop-up groups um, may not. Lots more to say, but I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you, Liz. Martin. Thank you very much, Gavin. <coughs> um, to start with reiterating something that said, which is that um, there are significant challenges to democratic systems all around the world. This is not peculiar to this country by any means. Um, I think you know, we're in the process of a, a huge transformation of the media and communication system, and as, that's, as that system is being transformed, so are our politics, and particularly so is campaigning. Um, but there are, I think, um, uh, some particular challenges to the British system, and given our discussion, I'll just... Uh, point to those, uh, and I'd just like to uh, outline uh, five particular ways that I think the, the new digital environment is undermining um, the legitimacy of our political system. Uh, I'll just list them and then I'll go through each. The first is um, in terms of undermining the secrecy of the vote. The second is in terms of undermining the protection of citizens from undue influence. The third is maintaining a fair level playing field. Um, the fourth is preventing elections from being bought. And the fifth is um, uh, allowing uh, citizens to properly scrutinize um, the advertising propaganda that's being targeted at them. Um, so to each of those, I mean, if you, if you look at, I'll just very briefly look at each of those. If you look at the first, in terms of the secrecy of the vote, um, there's a, a remarkable paper by uh, Kaczynski and Stilwell in 2013, um, which found that uh, it was on US voters, 50, uh, 58,000 US voters, uh, found that you could predict with 85% accuracy uh, what people were going to vote based on, that was based on their Facebook likes, but they've since found that it can be done with all manner of different digital traces. It's becoming easier and easier to um, figure out how people are vote, going to vote, even if they don't stick it in their um, profile, on their, on their uh, Twitter or Facebook profile. Um, and uh, not only does that allow for um, particular types of targeting, uh, it also leads directly to my next point about the um, protection from undue influence. So what we've seen increasingly, uh, especially outside the UK, but increasingly in the UK as well, is um, uh, uh, people being uh, targeted uh, by online groups, sometimes um, uh, very explicitly, sometimes uh, more anonymously, um, mobbed essentially, uh, harassed. Uh, this is not just public figures, although we've seen in this election a whole number of people step down and explicitly say that it was as a consequence of the abuse that they were being targeted with uh, over the course of the campaign, but it's happening to almost uh, anyone who chooses to step forward and um, uh, uh, say things that are political or of offensive to another group. And those are being sort of marshaled in a both formal and informal way online, uh, which is, I think, directly comparable in some ways to what we saw really in the 19th century, which we tried to legislate against, uh, cooping, um, treating, um, uh, bribery, uh, etc. In, in the early 19th century. Um, the third is around maintaining a level playing field, and many people probably know about this, but we saw this particularly first in 2015, where um, it's extremely difficult now to figure out exactly how much is being spent at a local level. Uh, you know, uh, uh, candidates are spo supposed to spend between 10 and 16,000 pounds, depending on the size and scale of the constituency. Um, uh, what's been happening, uh, particularly, I mean, it's, it's always happened to a certain extent, but particularly since 2015, we've seen um, uh, very, very targeted online campaigns at constituencies. Um, uh, where, where significant amounts are being spent. So in 2015, the Conservatives spent £1.2 million on Facebook alone. Um, they were very explicit subsequently that, that that money was targeted pretty much at 23 constituencies, most of them in the southwest, um, with, with very uh, divisive ads about a coalition with the SNP and a coalition of chaos. Um, uh, all that money, as far as I can tell, and I've, and I've looked into it, uh, was charged to the central budget, not to the constituency budget. Um, and therefore, um, ostensibly, it looks as though the candidates spent within their limits within, but, you know, and, 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 it, and it falls within the current law, but in terms of the principle of the law, you know, it completely undermines the, the, the purpose of it. Um, preventing elections from being bought, um, it's increasingly straightforward to spend a huge amount of money prior to an official regulated period. 
um, particularly in terms of data, in terms of building up a database, um, uh, 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 organizing that database, um, uh, developing models for that database and figuring out its target, um, uh, that gives you a significant advantage when it comes to the regulated period itself. Um, uh, and that is, is entirely separate from the, se uh, the other problem, which is sourcing the funding, which again is becoming harder and harder to do, even uh, when Facebook uh, insists that you are located within the UK, you can just set up a shell company and direct money through the shell company. Um, and then finally, enabling voters to um, evaluate uh, election material themselves. Will's already spoken to this, but um, we're seeing uh, significant amounts of um, not just uh, advertising, but um, news um, being targeted at people. Um, and it's extremely difficult for people to work out whether it has been paid for, who it's been paid for on behalf of, whether it's not paid for at all. Uh, and this is um, uh, complicated further, of course, by um, the degree to which uh, uh, the lowering of the hurdles to participation within election campaigns has been such that um, there's, there's uh, huge numbers of other people and other organizations participating, um, and, uh, and the legislation is, is not built to cope with uh, the number of third non-party or third-party participants. Um, so I'll, I'll finish there, but just, just, just to say that I think it would be, certainly to me at least, given what everyone's talked about already, given the degree to which um, I think most people are in agreement that the current laws are very outdated, given the degree to which you can bypass some of the protections that currently exist um, to try and uh, 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 keep the legitimacy of uh, elections. Um, uh, given that I think there are, we've already seen many people try to bypass um, those protections in a legal and non-legal way. Um, I would be enormously surprised if after this election you didn't get quite a large number of people from all sides questioning the legitimacy of the outcome. Thank you, Martin. Sir John. Thank you. Um, well, let me just start with a sort of positive note, building on what Will said at the beginning, because I think um, you know, whatever the levels of distrust in politicians or political parties, I think we can trust the electoral system itself. Uh, and, and I agree with Will, we should be very careful not to undermine it by what we're saying and give people distrust that is not justified. Let me just give you six reasons to be cheerful uh, before I go on to some less uh, positive uh, notes. One is there is actually, for the moment at least, broad compliance with election rules. There are exceptions to that, but essentially there is broad compliance. Secondly, so far at least, and I hear the warning you're giving there, Martin, results of elections and referendums have not been challenged. They've not been liked often, but they haven't been actually challenged on the basis that the, the, the process has somehow been fixed. Um, thirdly, voting and counting of votes is carried out with great transparency and rigour, and having seen it at close quarters, you can't fix it. Uh, fourthly, our elections are generally, are generally free from intimidation and major scandal. Not always true in lots of other countries. Uh, fifthly, we do have one of the most transparent electoral regimes, particularly financial regimes in the world, where money, for the moment at least, still plays a relatively limited role, <coughs> largely because of this ban on TV advertising, but as you say, online tends to blur that line, and that's something we're looking at. And fifthly, the, the public confidence in elections and, the, uh, and voting and so on, is actually at pretty high levels. It's between 80 and 90% when we do surveys after elections. Uh, I say whatever they think of politicians, they think that the process of voting uh, has been okay for them. Uh, now, having said that, we're not at all complacent about this. There's a huge amount of change and modernization needed in our system. We've been saying that for, for many years, and I'll go on to make some of those points. But just not, let's not lose sight of the underlying point that for the moment at least, the system, the electoral system, the electoral process which we're in the moment uh, is worthy of trust. And let me just say, by the way, that the, the figures we've had in the last few days or the last weeks uh, about registration uh, are rather encouraging. Of course, it's not a proxy for trust, but it's a proxy for engagement at least. So we've seen, I think, 3.85 million people uh, go onto the registers or apply to go onto the registers since the election was announced, which is quite a lot more than was the case. Uh, certainly in 2015 and 2017. Now, there's a problem with that because not all of those people who've applied uh, or, or weren't on the register already. There's a significant proportion of duplicates there, which is one of the reasons why the system is modernising. But still, I think that's, a, that's an encouraging sign. Okay, on the less good news front, so two main points, if you like, uh, to start with. One is that electoral law, our electoral law, is fundamentally unfit for purpose. 
Uh, it's not new, but it's just getting more and more obvious that that's the case. That's not just because of the new digital challenges which we're going to be talking about, uh, uh, and it's not just because also that the financial rules also need updating. I mean, the, the point you're making, Martin, about the split between local and central spending, local and party spending, is clearly unsatisfactory and, and needs tackling, uh, but that's what the legislation says at the moment. But in any case, leaving, leaving those things aside, electoral law is voluminous, it's inconsistent, it's extremely difficult to operate for those who actually run the elections, and it needs changing. Recommendations have been made to do that, but it hasn't happened so far. The second point is we do really need to modernise our system and bring it, slowly at least, into the digital age. The registration system is a good example of that. We have 380 separate electoral registers in this country which don't speak to each other. You can't interrogate them collectively. You can't, for example, look up whether you're registered already. Uh, you can't look up whether how many people are registered in two different places. Um, so you know, these are things we could fix, but uh, so far we haven't fixed. So there's a, there's a real issue there. And the register is the basis of lots of other things. If you ever want to go on to digital voting, which we're a long way from, or anything like that, you need to have the register fixed first and made uh, more modern. But obviously the main issue we're discussing today, and a, and a huge challenge for all of us, is how we deal with the new technology, how we deal with digital campaigning. Uh, and even though a lot of our regulatory work is actually after the elections, looking particularly at expenditure by uh, parties and campaigners, and even though we don't have any role in controlling the content of campaigns, and we don't have any role in, for example, controlling the use of data, that's for the information commissioner's office, we do try to focus as closely as we can on what's happening in the campaigns. Uh, that's both physically what's happening in terms of rallies and, and, and um, posters and, and leaflets and so on, but also online without trying to say in any way that we have the capacity to monitor the whole of the internet. We, we certainly don't. But what we try to do is, is four things, if you like. One is to make sure we're helping parties and other campaigns as much as we can to comply with the rules by by giving them advice whenever we can. The second is, is following the money, publishing what we can about money in real time. We publish donations in real time during the elections on a weekly basis. The third is to actually monitor the campaign as closely as we can, uh, both, as I say, the physical campaign and the digital campaign, so we actually know what is happening as much as we can, uh, and that's important. And fourthly, we can intervene if we, if we feel we need to. Uh, we, we have the powers to do that in some areas. Uh, although we obviously use them sparingly. But for example, if we see that a certain company is offering people free meals or free drinks if they vote in a certain way, we can say, actually, you can't do that. And normally they stop. And we, we have, we've had examples of that uh, in the past. It's a very ancient law of treating, actually, but still, it does work. And all this, the key principle for us is, is transparency. We genuinely believe that you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant for, for, for whatever's happening in elections. We try to practice that ourselves by publishing everything we can on our, our website, everything about the money and everything else we, we have, the, the registration of parties and so on. And we expect all uh, parties and campaigners to do the same, uh, to behave with transparency and integrity, which is a point we made after the recent controversy about uh, a particular Twitter account. Um, now, having said all that, there's no doubt that digital campaigning is a major challenge for us, and we certainly don't pretend for a second to have all the answers to this. Uh, the problems are that much of it is not visible, as, as uh, the previous speakers have pointed out. You can get an awful lot of bang for your buck uh, on the internet and on social media. Uh, there's a level of micro-targeting which is extremely hard to keep abreast of, uh, to, to put it no higher than that. And because there are, of course, all the risks that we've, again, heard about to some extent already about disinformation and outside interference. But having said that also, it's just worth reminding ourselves that digital campaigning, micro-targeting, whatever you like, is not illegal. Uh, and in fact, it's a, it's a perfectly good way uh, of reaching people and engaging with people, uh, engaging with people you don't always reach. And I think we should, again, bear that point in mind, not, not automatically assume that all of this is bad uh, uh, and so on. You know, we, we often hear a lot of talk about dark money and dark forces and you know, dark this and that without really much evidence of that. So I think we should just be careful to keep all that in proportion at times. It's not to say the risks aren't there, they certainly are there, uh, but let's just you know, bear in mind that a lot of it is perfectly legitimate campaigning as well. In any case, we certainly do need changes to, the, uh, to where we are now. We've recommended, as, as people have pointed out, quite a few ourselves in, over the past few years. Imprints is the most obvious example we've been recommending since 2003. Everybody agrees, the current government agrees, but they haven't actually done it, so we're still, we're still going through another election without their, their imprints, I mean, on digital uh, content. Uh, we certainly need to have uh, a much better 
service from the internet platforms, uh, the major platforms on their ad libraries. The ad libraries themselves are a good advance, uh, and we talked to them a lot before they started to produce that, but they need to do much better than that in consistency in the way they report them to make them much more accessible. Uh, we have argued that, that we need to be able to ask the parties and campaigners for far more detailed records of what they spend in the digital campaigning area. At the moment, all they're required to do uh, is, is say, you know, digital campaigning 2.5 million or whatever it is. They don't have to provide any breakdown because that's the way the legislation is set out at the moment. We think that should be changed. I think it will be useful. It wouldn't solve every problem. And by the way, all the spending rules do apply to digital campaigning. Uh, just as they do to anything else. Now, you, again, a, a lot of it can be very cheap, but if you do spend a lot of money on you know, expensive hardware and software before the regulated period, before a year before the election starts, that actually, actually has to be reported. If you use it in the campaign, then it counts as spending. So you, you don't, it doesn't escape the rules uh, entirely. Um, and fourthly, we've also argued that we should be given greater sanctions uh, to ensure, because we're, our maximum fine for an offence at the moment is £20,000. Uh, other regulators, comparable regulators, can fine much more. It's not that we want to raise money and the money goes to the Treasury, not to us, uh, but we think that it's just important that breaking the rules doesn't seem to be, uh, doesn't come to be seen as a kind of cost of, of, of doing business. I don't think that's the case at the moment, but we just need to be careful uh, that that doesn't happen. So all in all, obviously, we do need a lot greater regulation in this area. Uh, as I say, we're not claiming we have all the answers, but we're ready to play our full part in this in the future with the Information Commission's Office, with Ofcom, with others, the Advertising Standards Authority, or whoever. And we'll wait to see what happens after this election. I think there'll be a lot of, uh, a lot of lessons to learn. I think there'll be a lot of calls for action in this area. And we'll wait to see whether the government, if it's the same government or a similar government, whether they follow up and how they follow up on the online harms white paper they published uh, a few months ago, because the electoral part of that is actually very important and has not been very much spelled out at the moment. So that's, I think that's an area to watch for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, a quick question from me before I throw it out to you in the audience. So do think of your short and sharp questions. Um, unusually for this election campaign, we've just heard a lot of violent agreement on various, um, various issues. Um, there will be those people that say, well, actually, a lot of the practices that were corrupt have been going on for centuries, which a few of you have referred to. We've never known what campaigners are actually saying to individual electors. It's in the interests of some of these big data companies that are working with political parties to make grand claims about what they're actually capable of, and there may not always be the evidence there to support the fact that that's happening. Is there a risk of overreaction and moral panic in any of this? Well, no, I think, as I suggested, I think there is a risk of that uh, on the basis of what we know now. Now, we don't, we don't necessarily know everything. That's part of the problem because there's so much out there. It's very hard to know whether you know everything. But, you know, the evidence, for example, of outside interference is not nothing, uh, absolutely not, but it's not of such a volume and nature that you would think that something really bad has happened so far. Similarly, on the digital side, I would say that you know, there, are, there are definitely worrying practices and worrying things that you can't necessarily see. But for the moment, it's not been something which has had a, a major influence on one of our electoral events so far. That would be my sort of, sorry, my personal take. It's not really electoral commission view, if you, if you like. But I think we do need to be careful. We don't go into the sort of, it's all terrible. And therefore, everything that's happening you know, is not real, uh, and we're being misled, and the results of an election is, is, is not what it appears to be, or is not what it should have been if we hadn't seen these things. Please. I think the, um, the, the data practices are definitely new. Um, uh, and I know that Open Rights Group are doing really interesting work on this, and that they think they're going to be helping people who want to do subject access requests. So like, we have GDPR to help in, in, in some way around that. Um, but, but there is also um, there's. There's something fundamental about, um, I think, uh, people's motives, right? And, and the reasons why people might be engaging in sort of digital disruption in an electoral process. And I feel like sometimes we often talk about these things as if actors have a goal of influencing the outcome of the election, and that is sometimes the case, but it's quite often not. So, for example, during the referendum in Ireland, we saw or, uh, organizations in the US blatant. I mean, they had their address in the Bronx on their Facebook page targeting Irish people with signs that said vote um, one way or the other. Um, and so this was something that we caught. We were able to escalate it. Um, and Google and Facebook eventually kind of took, um, they, 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 they took some steps. But what we found then after that was that those same organizations were using the news reports 
of the interference in their fundraising domestically. And, and so for them, interfering in the Irish um, referendum process wasn't about necessarily influencing our constitution and actually probably counterproductive. It was, had, had domestic financial motives. I think we saw this a lot with the Macedonian um, disinformation forums and all these other things. And so um, I, I think, you know, um, to you know, Sir John's point about like, well, transparency in the systems en enables us to sort of figure these things out. But I think we need to bear that in mind as well that like, there are, there are different motives, and also we can't just think about, like there was a study out, I think yesterday, the day before, into whether or not Russian interference in the US election had an impact on the voting behavior of people who saw it. Um, and, and it found out that it, that it was sort of, you know, limited to no impact. But that's not necessarily the, the point. You know, this is, this is, this, this is a, it's about trust, it's about trust in the system, it's, it's about legitimacy of, of, of the result, and I think sometimes, um, yeah, we, you know, there, there are some things that are, that are fundamentally different. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think there is a danger both of overreacting and underreacting. And, and what I mean by that is that I think there is a danger that um, we recognize that there are some significant problems and we think that they can be uh, uh, resolved through some simple changes to legislation. Now, clearly, there are certain specific things one can do around laws, etc. Um, but I think that um, you know, the, the, the degree to the, the scale of this transformation is such that I think if we think it's going to be solved by Know, some silver bullet legislation. It's, it's not. It really isn't. Not least because there are some complexities to it which um, uh, well, certainly escape my understanding. I mean, I mean particularly, to come back to, to, to the point about data, the extent to which data in some ways has become like a parallel currency used in campaigns. Um, and uh, people are accumulating it outside of the main parties, outside of the structures that currently exist. Um, and uh, developing software around it and developing uses for it um, and then applying it in a way that has huge value but it's incredibly difficult to value it in, in the context of an election and to, uh, to supervise it and monitor it and figure out what to do about it. Um, so I, mean, I think there are some really, really complex problems here. Which, so in one sense, I think you know, there is a danger that we think we can legislate our way out of it quickly. Uh, however, at the same time, I think there is a... a huge um, role for, for, for seeking to understand this environment a hell of a lot better and recognizing that probably our whole democratic system is going to have to change pretty fundamentally over the course of the next decade or two um, uh, in order to recognize the changes that have happened in the digital environment. Um, let's hear from the audience both free speeches as a starting point of any democratic election and yes some of the things that have been said about the risk to elections are exaggerated. I didn't hear any of them from this panel. Thank you. Um, I'll now take questions. I'll take them in rounds of two or three. I'm going to try to gender balance the questioners, if possible, so please do put your hand up if you're even thinking of asking a question. Um, if you could tell us who you are and where you're from, if you're able to. I know civil servants are currently under pre-election guidance. If you're in the overflow room next door, uh, please do come to the door, and please do wait for a microphone to come to you. So hands up. Got two questions there, and the gentleman down here as well. Just next to you. Hi. Hi. Um, Hannah Williams, um, House of Commons. Um, so I just wanted to bring up the discussion of the kind of imprints on social media posts and things like that. What is to stop, um, you know, kind of technically unaffiliated companies like shell companies being set up so that the funding isn't directly linked back to main parties, say, or, or kind of main action groups, um, but is still, there's still kind of influence in the election. Um, and how would you stop that, I guess? Thank you. And down the front. Good afternoon, I'm Mark Scott from Politico. Um, to the panel, because there's some ongoing lack of transparency with all the digital campaigns, and even when you do have the data, it takes months, if not years, to gather it all together, how concerned are you that we're fighting the last war, not the current war? Thank you. 
um, three fantastic questions. Thank you. Um, who'd like to go first? Okay. Always <laughs> looking at me. Um, well, on, you know, the first question, I mean, Democracy Club, I think you do a fantastic job, and I think we have a, quite a good you know, collaboration with you in which we, we, we hope to expand in the future. Um, I mean, it seems to me there is, there is an awful lot of information out there. Of course, with the, one of the big advantages of the internet, you can find anything you want very quickly. So if people really want to find the information about who thinks what, they ought to be able to find it. So you know, I, I not, don't always have sympathy for those people who say, you know, I didn't hear anything, no one, no, no one tells me anything. You, you, you can find out if you want to. I suppose the problem is that people don't always make that effort. So how do you make that information uh, easily available to them? And, and I think you know, organizations like yours, and, and we're trying to do the same through our websites, but you know, we recognize that not everybody's going to be looking at that. Uh, I think that is important. Um, on the question about shell companies, I mean, that is a real concern because it's, ve it's very hard for us. We don't necessarily have the powers ourselves to look behind what's there, particularly if, you, you know, if, if, it's, if, the, if the trail leads overseas, we lose that trail because we don't have the powers to investigate at that particular point. We can pass it to others, hopefully, who do. Um, one of the suggestions we've made is that the, we, you know, we should be starting to think about applying the kind of legislation or the kind of provisions that exist in, in uh, anti-money laundering provisions to the electoral uh, field as well, because that might help to deal with that problem. One way of looking at it also is to say that any company which is doing that, um, for example, or making donations, has to be able to demonstrate that it generates sufficient revenue to justify what they're spending or what they're donating. To, to, I mean, that, you know, that's only a partial solution, but that would help to, to expose it. Um, and on the question of fighting the last war, I mean, I think, yes, we're always at risk of doing that. That's why governments find it so difficult to regulate in this area, because... Uh, they can't keep up with the way the technology is changing. And if you find some regulation which is designed to deal with Facebook and Twitter, you know, by the time the legislation's there, they, they'll have disappeared and been replaced by something else which will be, be of a different nature. So you've got to think about the principles of it. Um, I think the only comment I would make again is that you know, data, I mean, you're quite right, Martin, data is, you know, is, the, is the new currency. It's not always clear that, you know, again, having this data and trying to micro-target works. We don't really know, and even the com companies who do it don't really know what makes people vote in different ways. So we don't, working out what the impact of it might be is extremely difficult. I mean, it's just as difficult as it's always been with other things. So, you know, we shouldn't always assume just because lots of people micro-targeted it makes lots of people change their minds. We don't know whether that's the case. And actually, the, most of the experts I talk to rather suggest it doesn't. Um, although it might make them be more likely to turn out if they feel a particular way already. So, you know, it, it's, we just need to be careful about the way we talk about it and not to attribute too much power to these, to these things. No, no, I entirely agree with that. But to Liz's point, I think, which is, which is a really important one, is that in most cases, it's not about changing people's minds. It's about provoking a response. And that doesn't, mm. that's, that's, that's maybe about voting. It may be about volunteering. It may be just about sharing or commenting or liking so that you can then... Um, retarget and evangelize to their network. Um, so, so I think we have to recognize the behavior response, and actually there is growing evidence about behavior response and, and what, what you can do in terms of um, targeted advertising, um, in terms of behavior response. I mean, if I can just join the first and the third question, um, or try to, um, I think you, you absolutely um, put your finger on, on an issue that really bothers me, which is the, the lack of positive intervention. And, and what I mean by that is the degree to which um, it goes to what we were saying earlier, the degree to which we're sort of almost um, outsourcing um, some of the responsibilities for this to the platforms and assuming that they will take care of it. So I don't think it's happened in the UK. In the US, um, one of the things that Google did was when you uh, uh, wrote in the name of a particular candidate, they had an information box that came up on the right-hand side and it had a whole series of issues, you know, um, from transport, immigration, housing, and then a quote from the candidate to give you an idea of what that candidate thought. Now, that was... Um, essentially curated algorithmically, but it was created by Google. So Google was making the decisions as to how that candidate should be represented and what quotes were best, you know, rep most representative of that candidate. Now, it seems to me that's a, why should we be outsourcing that role to Google, you know? And, and um, to the point about people can go out and find information, well, yes, but, I mean, the problem that we have at the moment is about how people assess the trustworthiness of the information they're finding. Um, and, and it's becoming more and more difficult, particularly as people consciously try and put stuff into the, uh, into the public realm, which is 
deliberately distrustworthy. And, and it might be easier to find out the details of a candidate in an election, but I mean, try find out the details of a candidate in the police commissioner's election, or you know, one of the uh, uh, the more the more minor uh, um, elections. So, so I mean, to come to this fight of the last war versus the, the the next one, I mean, this is where I think we really need to start to think less reactively and responsibly, because we seem to be constantly knee-jerk. Oh, look, there's a crisis, there's a problem, let's deal with it, let's bring in legislation or rules to deal with that particular problem, when actually we should be looking forward and saying, okay, uh, how are we going to, you know, what, what, what would, how, how do we want to preserve the real principles of the election and what will that mean? And, and for me, at least, one of the things it means is not relying so much on the platforms, thinking about how we can positively intervene to, for example, create public spaces and public information that is more trusted and you know you can source, et cetera, and you can, uh, so, so I think there is, an awful lot we can do in a positive way rather than this always, always, always reacting. And just finally, just very briefly on the, on the, on the question about the shell companies. I mean, I think, and this might be a question we come back to, which is around, you know, we haven't really discussed yet, the, you know, the difference between paid uh, advertising and free speech. I mean, you know, we have always in this country had a very, very big distinction from the US in terms of the constraints we put on paid advertising. Um, and those uh, <laughs> appear to have disappeared online. Um, and, and, and when we have discussions around, I mean, when we had the recent discussion around Twitter banning political advertising, most of the people who were speaking up for political advertising appeared to come from the US and speak on the Today program, slightly bizarrely. Um, but the US has completely different rules to ours. And so, and so there seems to be a big question around, you know, what should we be doing in this country, given our political heritage, given the legislation we've had in the past, what should we be doing about paid advertising online as opposed to free speech? And that's where the bar is for the platforms. The bar, the bar for the platforms is trying to get up to the level of US electoral law, right, where um, uh, spending money by corporations was deemed uh, constitutionally protected free speech. And, and, you know, and, and they are, to, to Mark's point, they are 100%. The platforms definitely are, are, are fighting the last war. And I think there's, there's a risk as well that, like, you know, this, um, the, the election that's upcoming that we kind of, you know, we end up fighting that war again, right? Um, you know, Will, you, you were saying not seeing kind of huge um, um, instances of sort of attempts at overseas interference or whatever. But I think the, the, the bar for UK and Irish um, electoral law needs to be how would a border poll play out in the context of a digital, um, a, a, the digital world that we live in and, and the electoral law and, and, and other laws around it as it stands. And the UK general election doesn't keep me awake at night, but the thoughts of a border poll with the world as it is right now do, do keep me awake at night. Um, I think in terms of the, the, the candidate in, in, in information piece, I, um, I think sort of like, you know, public broadcasting has such a, an important role to play in mitigating the chaos of, of, of the internet. And I'm not sure, I think the, the BBC is better than most, but in terms of sort of like reimagining what, what, what a public information system means, right? Like in, in an era where we're sort of, you know, we're, we're moving beyond or broadcast or at least broadcast plus. I know during the last general in, in Ireland, RTE gave every candidate who was running a one minute slot and had to stand in the same space. And they had, they, had, they had 60 seconds to sort of make their pitch and they had this nice little website. And, and it, it, it got huge amounts of traffic. Um, I know obviously the, the scale is much smaller, but like there are, there are digital things that I think public broadcasters can, can be doing to be complementing. And I think you know, likewise to the question about um, tracing uh, sort of cor corporate ownership, um, Sam Jeffers, uh, who targets me, I think it was yesterday or the day before, did some interesting digging into um, a, a, a group that, that, had, that was cleared by Facebook to be running ads called third party something or another, and they were targeting people in different constituencies trying to get them to sort of vote for a third party and, and not for Labour, and he was able to look through Companies House and, and sort of do, do some of that digging and, and, and do it in real time, and I think this is where you know, like electoral law should be enabling the transparency to allow civil society, including journalism, to sort of do that real time. And people who are incentivized to, to do some of that real time digging, um, you know, before people vote. Um, just briefly on the last question. Regulation should be a proportionate response to clearly identified harms. And in an election, that's more important than ever when free speech is the fundamental starting point for an election. The proposals we've heard from this panel about transparency of campaigning, transparency of advertising and so on, aren't fighting the last war. They're probably more like trying to invent radar. We don't know enough about what's going on full stop to identify what the necessary changes to election law are to have elections with integrity in five or 10 or 20 years time. 
And so the first step in a proportionate response to that challenge is greater transparency and greater information about what's going on. It's very unlikely that that is the last step we will need to take. But until we've taken that step, we are fighting this battle blind. Um, and on that point, of course, transparency of information about who's standing for the election is extraordinary that we do not have it. And it is only thanks to 20,000 wonderful volunteers at Democracy Club that that information is collected and made available for free um, and available for reuse. Full fact, very happily used the data collected by Democracy Club's volunteers to email every candidate in this election to ask them to get their facts straight. And many of them really engaged with that request. So I'd like to thank Democracy Club. I'd also like to throw a challenge back to the Electoral Commission and others. Why on earth do they exist in their current form? Those 20,000 wonderful people could be doing so much for our democracy. Why on earth is it collecting candidates' names? It's worth noting there was, a, there was a pledge which government was signed up to in a previous Open Government National Action Plan, which was to make candidate information available in a consistent data format that would allow all of this stuff to happen. So there is a question as to why that hasn't happened yet. Um, I'm going to take one quick round of questions, so keep questions short. Um, there's a lady there, there's a gentleman at the back, and uh, there's a gentleman in the back row there as well. Thank you. Uh, Chloe from ISD. Um, thank you so much for all of your comments. Um, both on this panel today and in the past two years in the UK, we've had a number of very, I would say, well-evidenced proposals for regulatory and legislative change um, in this direction from the ICO, from the Electoral Commission, and a number of independent groups. What is it going to take uh, to incentivize politicians to actually, in some ways, self-regulate themselves and um, improve the situation that we've all spoken about today? Thank you. Uh, right at the back. Yeah. Hi, my name is Aksha. I'm from British American Business. So first of all, thank you for taking your time and sharing all these insights with us. But one thing that's jumping out is clearly a lot of these disinformation campaigns are really a transnational threat. So what do you think is the best way to sort of harmonize regulations and electoral laws with other countries? And, share best practices? What is the best way to promote that type of cooperation? Thank you, and here as well. Robert Hazel, an associate here at the IFG. My question in part has been asked by the lady across the aisle. It's very simple. Why do you think government and parliament have failed to act? Thank you all very much. Three more great questions. And, and members of the panel, if you want to wrap any closing thoughts into your answers to these as well, that would be terrific. Okay, so in a democratic election, uh, politicians can be malicious actors. The biggest threat to an informed election this time round has been the people standing to form the next government. And they are, of course, the people we are asking to set the rules for our election. There is a clear conflict of interest there. There is an unavoidable conflict of interest there because these decisions have to be taken in an open, democratic, transparent process, which means that our politicians have to live up to their responsibilities and actually get on with this. If they're not willing to do that, then I think independent organisations are going to be promoting amendments in Parliament to legislation which isn't explicitly designed for this purpose. Full Fact has already drafted a private member's bill, which Baroness O'Neill tabled on this subject, I think, two sessions ago. So, yes, we are looking at ways of putting this on the agenda of Parliament, regardless of whether government wants to give time to it. But we should take encouragement from the fact that government proposed an election integrity bill, which at least has the potential to have the scope to cover some of these issues, and that the online harms white paper is wending its slow way through the government process. There are opportunities to discuss this, and we will be using them to the fullest, and I'm sure other civil society organisations will. For my part, I do not think the goal should be harmonising this uh, across countries. I think Martin was absolutely right to say that, and uh, Liz as well. Different countries have different democratic and electoral cultures, and that is a good thing, and those distinctions are important. The British attitude to uh, TV advertising is very different from other countries. Both views, as far as I can see, are valid views of the role of free speech in a democracy, but Britain has a particular one. So the idea that you can have one set of election rules for all the different kinds of democracy in the world strikes me as far-fetched. And I think, actually, I would advise national governments around the world to take unilateral action in this area 
and then the internet companies in due course will come to them and say, well, what are, what are the common strands we can find? How can we create more of a global consensus in this area? If we wait and try and build global consensus, we will delay action too long. It's time for unilateral action by every country. We control our own democracies. Um, I mean, I wish I knew the answer to why governments and parliaments haven't acted. Uh, maybe we haven't been an effective enough advocate for, for change, although we keep banging on about it endlessly, uh, privately and publicly. Um, I would say one of the reasons is that parliamentarians in general in this country, and also the media, take virtually no interest in electoral issues, which is unlike other countries. I mean, when we look at comparable countries like Australia and Canada, they have select committees who are looking at this, they have, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's a lively debate um, for a lot of these areas in this country, there is not, and I can't really explain that to you. Um, but I just think it's a pity, and we, we, you know, one of the things we would like to do is to stir up more of a debate uh, about that. Um, I think it's also interesting that there are a number of proposals actually in, in the manifestos um, about this. I mean, they don't cover all the areas we've been talking about, but they cover some of them. So it may be this is a subject whose time has now come. Uh, and I say, you know, we have been talking about the need for electoral law reform, for example, for a long time, and there is a sort of, to use an expression, an oven-ready proposal from the law commissions, you know, ready for Parliament to pick up if they want to, but so far they haven't wanted to. Um, I think the idea of international harmonisation uh, for, uh, for the moment is, uh, I entirely agree with, with, with Willis, for the birds. It just simply isn't going to happen. I think governments are going to have to, to, to legislate themselves I think the interesting point is that, just to recognise that only governments can do this, only governments can set regulations for this, as in some other areas. And actually, when you look at what the, the, the internet companies are saying, they are saying, please regulate, please tell us what the rules are, and then we'll obey them. They don't want to actually be taking, you know, they don't want to be the, the, uh, the, the setters of the standards. They think that's a government's job, and, you know, governments need to respond to that and regulate. It's difficult because, for all the reasons we've been discussing, but I think that's the... That's the direction uh, we're going to have to go in. Um, yeah, so I think in, in, in terms of why governments have failed to act, I know why, well, I know what the Irish government are saying, that their reason they failed to act, and that's in part because this is led by the Department of Antichok, and he's been quite busy with Brexit. <laughs> um, so hopefully if you all can sort that out, then we'll, we'll, we'll make a bit of, um, we'll make a bit of progress. But seriously, I, I think there is, and I guess this is reiterating what Lisa has said, I think, um, you know, the, the election commission here, um, similar bodies in Ireland have been asking for this for years. Um, politicians haven't acted, and I actually, I don't think sort of citizens of society, journalists, and whatever, have taken enough responsibility in pushing this off the agenda. Um, so I think that's that's kind of on, on all of us. Um, in terms of international cooperation, we might have a disagreement on the channel. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it's extremely difficult, at least in, in you know, if, if, if we separate out the bits, the bits, at least in relation to platform governance, I think it's extremely difficult for any government to act unilaterally, um, uh, not least because of, frankly, the sheer lobbying weight of the of, of, of the companies as it stands. Sort of a, um, it's very difficult to imagine any government outside the US. Um, and I've talked to officials. I've, I've spoken to officials in, in various places who say it is extremely extremely difficult to 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 do that. I mean, I think that's just the one bit of it though, right, in terms of getting a set of standards for our expectations for platforms in terms of what, what information we need them to put in the public domain about what's happening on their platforms. I entirely agree with both Will and Sir John that we don't want harmonization of electoral laws. Um, every every country has its, own, has its own values. I mean, even Northern Ireland has its own particular set of um, rules to, to deal with the particular historical situation there. Um, which, which brings me to, to my, my, my phone, just, just one kind of hobby horse of, of mine. I, you know, I'm, I'm all for transparency. We need as much transparency as possible. I do think, I know there's a case in Northern Ireland at the moment which is looking at whether or not um, candidates' addresses need to be in the, in the public domain. I think, um, you know, in, in a digital age, we've talked a lot about the information that we need in the public domain. I think, you know, th there is something about and the dynamics of being a woman in public life, um, and in particular in a context like Northern Ireland, but it seems to be pretty similar here. Um, I, I think that's one of the things that we need to relook at um, in, uh, in, uh, in the context of, of electoral, electoral reform. Martin. Uh, well, in 30 seconds ago, then we've gone over. Um, uh, I always like to end on a depressing note. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, clearly there's a bit of turkeys in Christmas, um, and, uh, and, and we see in every election cycle, um, and not least 
the recent ones that actually uh, a party seems to gain an advantage through using new digital tools and then, and then the other party uh, learns from it and then they seem to uh, leapfrog, etc. And uh, there, is, there is certainly an element of these tools are extremely effective and why should we constrain ourselves? Um, but I also think that there is a, uh, both, both a, a lack of understanding um, and to a certain degree a lack, of, a lack of clear evidence, not least because an awful lot of it is held by the platforms themselves, um, about exactly what's happening and how it's happening and the effects that it's having. And without that clear evidence, it's very difficult to take very, very concrete material action. Um, uh, uh, I think, um, you know, if we, if we see action at the moment, we're, we're seeing it, as Will says, from the platforms themselves, which is, which is kind of galling. Um, but that is, that is, those are the main actors at the moment in this environment. Um, uh, and I'm afraid, uh, I think, you know, as uh, we've talked about a little bit, I think this is, this is uh, we're going to see this debate probably in the next 10, 20 years, so you can invite this back in five years' time. I mean, this is going to go on because of the, the, the scale of the transformation for an awfully long time. And so I think actually we're looking at a generational issue as well. Um, and uh, to a degree, this will not I don't think, be solved or at least resolved um, for at least another generation. Inviting you back in five years' time, given how many elections and electoral <laughs> events you might have, it might be sooner than that. Um, a very quick parish notice um, before we go. Um, this is one of a number of hashtag IFG election 2019 events. Do check out our website for the full listing. But just to tell you about one event tomorrow, which will answer the question of what on earth all of the manifestos mean. Um, Rachel Sylvester from The Times, uh, my colleagues Joe Owen, Nick Davis, and Giles, Wil Giles Wilkes, chaired by our director, Bronwyn Maddox. That's tomorrow. Uh, do sign up to that. All that remains for me to say is thank you to all of you for coming, but please join me in giving a huge thank you to an incredibly brilliant panel. Thank you.